Welcome to the Eye on Annapolis Local Business Spotlight. There are thousands of locally owned businesses in the area, some small and some large. Some you may know and others you don't. But one thing they all have in common is a great story, and we want to share it with you. Join us every Saturday as we talk to the founders, the owners, and the managers of local businesses you have come to know and love, and those you will come to know and love. Now here's your host, John Frenet, with this week's Local Business Spotlight. I am here with, uh, I would say my psychotherapist, but uh, I am with Tex Ellis, who is a psychotherapist here in Annapolis with Changing Patterns Psychotherapy. They're located Shinkapin Round Road, two-story brick building that has York Florist. It's got a subway on one side of it. Kimberly Barton, who's a local realtor, had suggested that we talk. So here we are on a Saturday morning. Uh, I am not on the couch. I'm on a uh, on a chair next to the desk. We want to learn a little bit more about um, changing patterns and you and everything that you do, because I think it's probably, I don't think, I know it's a good thing to talk about um, mental health. Yes, sure. So, and thank you very much for making your time on a Saturday. I don't, um, I know it's a, a busy day and everything else. So I, I do appreciate that, but. Well, tell me about you. I mean, you are a psychotherapist. So uh, I often get asked, Tex, how did you get into this to begin with? And I always tell people, I've been doing psychotherapy. I just didn't know it was psychotherapy probably for, oh, Lord, 40 or so years, maybe 45. And they're like, what? And I'm like, yep, my dad owned a bar. People used to come in the bar all the time. And I worked at bar as a teenager, bar back. And this is a little old bar in Louisiana, you know, where laws are a little bit different in the South, especially down in Louisiana. So if you got kids, your kids work. And even if it's a bar, you work, you sweep, you mop, you clean, you, you do the, you know, the mugs. So I always tease people back in the day, it was psychotherapy by the bottle and now it's by the hour. Because people would come in and sit down and you would hear stories and people would tell you their problems. People, and I always tell people, I said, psychotherapy is good. Having a therapist is good. I said, but if you think about it, you've probably had one most of your life and you didn't appreciate it. You know, your your local barber is a great place to go sit and sure. talk about what bothers you. You know, there's always the old farts group that sits around somewhere downtown and they talk to each other and get stuff out. And I think as times have changed and we've gotten so busy and separated from each other that we don't have those social networks anymore to actually talk our problems out and have somebody look at us and go, wait a minute, let's look at this from a different angle. And when you don't have that, it's hard for you to reflect and change and figure out what's going on. And you also, you need that bit of honesty because, you know, an old fart will look at you and go, you know, that was stupid. Do you want to rethink that? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you never have that in your life to go, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe I sh you know, that that wasn't good. Maybe I need to go back and tell the better half I messed up. So yeah. we need those things in life and we don't have them like we used to. We don't have the connections we used to. So how how did um, changing patterns come about then? And And I would say probably... I probably agree with you. Probably working in a bar is probably one of the best training Good grounds. Good start. But, I mean, how did, how did it evolve from, you know, working as a bar back as a teenager in Louisiana to a professional practice? How many days do we record here? <laughs> <laughs> so, so the thing is, is I have uh, done a lot of jobs, did a lot of things in my life. I'm ex-military. I'm Army. And, and I know some people out there, a lot of people in this area are Navy. When they hear that, they're going to go, oh, 
I wished I could have been Army too. But um, <laughs> that's my way of teasing them because I do bump into a lot of Navy people around here, you know, and I'm like, yeah, okay. Left home when I was a kid, decided I wanted to get a different taste of life, traveled around. Over the years, I've done a lot of different things. I uh, found myself before... 9-11, right about 9-11, the world changed. And that was the first, what I would call the major change and shift in the world. And when I was driving a truck and the bottom sort of fell out of the business, things hit and I was thinking, you know, I really want to get back into school. I really want to get back into college. I really want to see things in a different perspective. And my back can only take so many of these boxes anymore. <laughs> so I went back to college and I actually had originally got back into nursing. And got into the first few of the, the clinicals and realized that I like the psychological part much more than I like the medication part. So I shifted right into doing uh, philosophy and psychology. And from there, I got hit up by two, because uh, I was in psychology doing my psych major, I got hit up by two of the professors that told me, you need to look into social work and I was like you need to get bent and they're like no 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 you don't understand what social work is and I really didn't at the time and then I realized once I got to talking to people that I could do everything I wanted to do in psychology I could be a therapist for any group of people that I wanted to be I could practice any way I wanted to practice do therapy and I could also do the things that a social worker does as far as case management, helping people find resources, uh, you know, working with the government, working with local agencies, working with the hospitals. So it gave me a lot of flexibility. And I'm a big believer that in any game, the one that wins the game is the one who has the most options, the most moves. So the more of those I have, the more choices I can make down the road. From there, I went in, finished and got my social work masters and I got into work doing uh, social work with Villa Maria which is a very good organization it falls under Catholic charities and those people are huge and the amount of services they deliver across the state is enormous so I started working and doing therapy in schools up in Millersville and in the high school in the middle school and then the outpatient clinic I realized though that I have a niche and that's personality disorders I found that a lot of clients who had personality disorders were attracted to me, and I was one of the few therapists who will deal with people who have personality disorders, because that is a tough business. And so from there, I started studying it more, taking more classes on it, and I also realized if I was going to pick and choose the kind of clients that I wanted to work with, I would have to start my own. So I started my own business, Changing Patterns. Now I do other things. Among those, I used to do a lot more hypnosis. I don't do that as much anymore, but I also do EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization reprocessing, which is a trauma therapy. And I look for an effective trauma therapy because most of the people that I was working with that had personality disorders also had a lot of trauma. So it kind of went hand in hand. And by having my own business, I can pick and choose who I work with on the evenings and weekends. And then I still do a gig during the day because, after all, everybody needs health insurance. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's how that all kind of slowly morphed over the years. Well, that was one of the questions that sort of came to my mind was that when you said you pick and choose who you would, the types of people that you would like to work with. So 
I mean, I know that there are some therapists that, you know, they get into like the court ordered therapy and, and type of thing. Is that that's not something that you're into? This is a I would say a voluntary type. Bless those people who do that kind of therapy for people who are mandated. I always had it in my mind that I like to do therapy with people that at least some level really, truly, truly want it. And I'm not saying people who are mandated don't want it. They just don't know they want it. And it makes for a difficult business because when you have somebody sitting there who doesn't want to be there, who's angry and upset, that's like trying to sell shoes to somebody that, that's you know going, I don't want shoes. I don't like shoes. I wear sandals. Leave me alone. It sort of reminds me of that. I think it was Marshawn Lynch at the Super Bowl a couple of years ago. It was like he didn't want to do any of the media things. And he says his, his only response is, I'm only here because they said I had to be here and they're going to find me if I'm not. Yep. <laughs> it was, and, and I imagine, you know, for a therapist, that's just got to be very frustrating. I mean, you've it, it is social work itself. If you're into social work, you're going to be doing a lot of work with a lot of populations that are mandated if you're doing the court order stuff like that or you know cps child protective services department of social services some mandated things going for there and and, and that's like different a different niche a different spot that people work in but there are also people though that realize real quickly their thing is working with with people who you know hospice care and bless those people who work with people who know they have terminal illness that is a tough business to do yeah and there are those that sort of find their way into the area of working strictly with trauma all day long. And and even though I have a lot of trauma clients, I don't have trauma all day long. I honestly can say I don't know if my psych would hold together if I had to do trauma patients all day long. Sure. I like being able to mix it up a little bit, um, seeing different people for different reasons. But like I said, the majority of what I see is people with personality disorders. And the majority of those are people who have borderline personality disorder. And that is my specialist. I'm a certified personality disorder specialist. Now, what is a personality disorder? I mean, what is that? Uh, I mean, what, that seems like a fairly broad term to me. So the way that to look at it is, let's say just you as average Joe, you've had an average life and nothing particular happens. One day you have a traumatic car wreck, right? And after the car wreck, you find that you have some things that are gone gone wrong for you, that now you're having trouble driving, you're avoiding driving, you have nightmares, you have some flashbacks when you're in the car. And so what I'm describing is, is a PTSD event. Sure. Or if somebody in your family passes and you just get really sad and that's grieving, but then after a while it just doesn't seem to go away and you can't get over it. Now you're edging into depression. If you flip and actually though look at things that are not event related. In other words, if you look at your family history and you realize that, you know, grandpa had anxiety, great grandpa had anxiety, mom had anxiety. Well, there's a genetic component now. Your level of having anxiety went dramatically up. And then you have that kind of problem where you have the anxiety. Personality disorders is a little bit like that, but a little bit different. There's a genetic component. It's a strong genetic component, and odds are if you have a personality disorder, you had a personality disorder somewhere in the line. The personality disorder itself is something that has this huge genetic component, and I'm talking about borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, um, histrionic, which I see every now and then. And then there's another little cluster 
that is the cluster C, which is dependent personality disorder, and, and, and avoid it. And there's, there's a group there. And then there's another one that you see, which I call the Cosmo Kramers of the world for people who've watched Seinfeld, those really odd behaviors. Genetic component, and then you see it happen early in life, and you develop your personality. So sometimes, you know, it, the, the DSM says that you need to wait to diagnose for a lot of these until people are around 18 unless you have a lot of evidence to show they've been having it for more than a year. And so then you see these traits start to pop up as, as a child, as a teenager, and I see a lot of teens and a young adult. And you realize that the way of thinking of this individual is so vastly different than you and me. Um, when I talk to colleagues, especially people who are not used to doing this, it's very difficult for someone who doesn't have a personality disorder to understand someone who does have one. And the way I explain it is, is if you speak English, you understand and think in English. And someone who only speaks French only understands and speaks in French. And you keep arguing about things in English, you're not getting anywhere with someone who speaks French. You're going to have to learn to figure out how that French person is thinking before they will start to learn how you're thinking. So someone who has a personality disorder who sees the world in a certain way, their rationality just does not click like yours. Like you could sit here and say, you know, if, if I sit here and, and go to a party and drink this thing that someone handed me that makes absolutely, I don't know who gave it to me. I don't even know what's in it. A rational person would sit here and go, you know, I don't think I want to do that because right. Lord knows where I'll end up at the end of the night. Somebody with no impulse control who's not able to think in those same lines will go. Bring it well, on. Yeah. Here, give it to me. Or they'll say, well, I don't want to be rude. I'll drink it. So your normal terms of rationality start to go out the window, and you have to learn to speak a second language. And you can see how difficult it is for that kind of person to function in a normal, everyday world when most of the people think differently, and they don't understand how you think, you don't understand how they think, and they feel very isolated and caught in trying to deal with their world. And people keep saying, well, it's just that easy, you know, it's just do this, and they're like... What do you mean? Yeah, easy for you to say. Okay. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that a lot of this is hereditary. Yes. Now, which to me seems that it's, this is probably a really bad word to use, but curable. I mean, do you take patients with personality disorder and is, is it a, we need to identify it mm -hmm. and then we need to cope with it and learn how to deal with it and how to, you know, yes, recognize when you're, in a situation in the party and there's some kind of crazy concoction coming, how to react to that? or So, that so personality is a long time developing. And so it's like any habit. When you have a habit, it's a long time changing a habit. I totally believe that it is curable to a level of where you can have the life you want or I wouldn't do the business. It would be like being a mechanic knowing that I can't fix your car but keep charging you. That, that to me is just, no, uh-uh, don't do that. The thing is, though, is in, in the way I'll explain it, you, you said something specific, being able to identify it and diagnose it. So what will often happen, and, and this is the easiest way to explain, when I explain to people who come in, a lot of people will see me and they'll say, well, I've been diagnosed with bipolar, and immediately I get suspicious when I hear bipolar. Bipolar condition, and, and, and I'll give it to you, my fast nutshell that I give clients, if you can envision 
a, a line that moves across a piece of paper like graph paper. Mm-hmm. And if that line is your normal way of being, in other words, your normal levels of happiness, sadness, and all that, that is you on an average day, and it has ripples every now and then, like, you know, Grant, Aunt Matilda passes, and you dip, you feel down, so you, your mood goes down and comes back up. That's a little grief. Someone who has depression, it dips in the way that ex- depression, the easiest explanation for me to say is, someone who has depression that's not dependent on a situation is like standing at the edge of the ocean, waving at their buddies and friends that are up on the shore and going, hey, and this giant wave comes behind them and engulfs them and drags them under. They never saw it coming. They don't know why it's there. They just know they're drowning in it. And that is depression to me in a nutshell. Now, some people have this over and over again, and that's the depression that is recurrent. That's a chronic. It's chronic in the sense that if you don't treat it, and a lot of that is medication and therapy combined that treats that one. And then some people, and this is where the bipolar comes in, they have those dips, but occasionally have these highs where that line I talked to you about, it, they pass it and they start climbing it. As they're going up, they're starting to, to get hyper up. They're speaking faster. Things are moving faster in their life. Their thoughts are going faster. They can't sleep. They're cleaning the house. They're dusting behind encyclopedias. They're getting irritable. Or they're getting very excited. They're doing things they'd never do. And they get a lot of hypers. Hypersexual, hyperspending, hypergambling, hyperbuying. They start to think they're invincible. And when you start to top to that manic level, you figure you figured out the stock market. You pull all the money out of your bank and put everything in the stock market. Or you actually get to a point of where you're so manic you see and hear things other people don't see or hear. Just like at the bottom of depression, at the other end of that wave is where you see and hear things that other people don't see and hear. Now those are the extremes. But now you're talking bipolar if, just like a sine wave, if you know radio waves or anything, or even ocean waves, they have a pattern. So my clients who have bipolar, I can pretty well tell them it's that time. I've had clients where they come in and I'd be like, so are you starting to have those problems again with the hallucinations? And I go, how did you know? And I said, it's January. It's it's January. And I, I remember a commercial for a drug, and I want to think it was an antidepressant. Mm-hmm. Um, we're in the disclaimers at the end where they talk. Like, <laughs> you know? Yes. Uh, one of the things that we always thought it was funny. I mean, okay, we laughed when we were young with the Olestra, and it's like anal leakage and stuff like that. But yeah. this one said that may cause irrational gambling. And you mentioned mm-hmm. in the bipolar, when you're in the yes. ultra-hyper stage, that, that you specifically – is that related Perhaps the medication well, could take you if, up to a if point you, where... And this is where, you know, getting in the bipolar, before we leave that, if you don't know you have bipolar yet and you think you have depression, the doctors think you have depression, they give you medication for depression. Picture a slingshot. Pull the slingshot back. And as you pull it back, right, that's you going down into depression. Right. Now, I give you a medication to push that back up to norm. But if you're someone who has bipolar and doesn't know it yet, which means you have a tendency to those hypomanic and manic highs, I've just slingshotted you into a manic episode because I didn't know that's what you had. So when a doctor gives you that wow. meds and you slingshot past okie dokie right into woohoo and you're there, you're gone. And you know, you, I, I love the analogy of the slingshot because that, I mean, personally, I don't understand depression myself and I, and I, I have said, to friends time and time again that I don't ever understand how somebody could get to the point of so depressed where, you know, they may take their lives and, you know, and everything else. But 
you really hit a, a nerve with me with the slingshot because as you're pulling it back, this is this is the pressure. I mean, you're yes. holding back whatever you possibly can. And when it gets released, there's this relief. Yes. It's ah, ah, ah. Okay. So, and it's Thank funny because people, people get upset because medication don't go fast enough sometimes. And the doc's trying to tell you, look, I'm trying to give you the lowest dose possible and crank you up to a level that will get you even because if i give you too much then you might be somewhere you don't want to be or you might have side effects you don't want to have because medication for psychiatric disorders is different than medication like antibiotics antibiotics i can look at you and go you're x amount of weight you're a guy you're this you're that okay this is the med you need take this for seven days take every dose until it's done blah 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 psychiatric meds are not like that you might have a different constitution and someone has the exact same weight as you, or you might have a different mental makeup. So they start you off slow and work it. But now the interesting thing is, though, that to jump from this analogy, people will come in and say, I have bipolar. And I'll be like, okay, and how do you know you have bipolar? And they'll explain the highs and lows. And I said, how fast do you have those? And they're like, oh, sometimes within a day or a week. Bipolar don't work like that. Bipolar is stretched out. People go to those high manic episodes or hypomanic episodes once every three months, once every six, once every year. For you to say you're going up and down like that within a week, that ain't bipolar. The thing is, though, there's a certain stigma that goes with other diagnoses, like cluster B diagnosis, like borderline personality disorder. And when I talk to clients who have that, I have to make sure that I catch them right off the bat and say, look, you know, and this is what I think, and this is why I'm very methodical. I go through the DSM. I explain the symptoms. I show them. I, I make sure. It's like making a legal case. I have a rock-solid idea of why I'm looking at this. And then I say, and when you leave here, you're going to do like everybody else. You're going to run out and get on that computer and start pegging that in to find out what Google has to say. And it ain't going to say nothing nice. Because most people who've bumped into somebody who has this disorder and knows this is what it is, it's, it's tough on a family. It's tough on a couple. It's tough on your friends. So then I need you to understand that there's a lot that goes into having that diagnosis because you're very emotional means you're also very loving and caring with people. It means that you have a capacity to feel deeply you can feel deep oceans of emotion for other people, which makes other people just love to be around you when you're in the good place. And when you're in the bad place, they run from you like a volcano exploding. Yeah. You no. need to understand that. Otherwise, you only see the bad and you get very down on it. But there's a lot of people who come to me and go, thank you. And I'm like, what you mean? And they said, I've been seeing doctors for... 10, 15, 20 years. And I'm so frustrated because I never know what's going on. And they keep telling me, oh, you have this, take this med, or you have this, do this. And I'm not getting any better. And I don't understand it. And I've had 20 therapists and five different med providers. And, and no matter what I do, it never gets better. If you don't properly diagnose from the beginning, how can you work on what's the problem? And that's the biggest thing with personality disorders. People either don't want to have them, therapists don't want to diagnose them, because it's just too scary for most people to deal with. So they brush it under the rug and say, oh, you just got depression and anxiety. And they ignore all the, or they explain it away. 
oh, it must be this reason you're doing this or this reason you're doing that. Yeah, that seems like an easy, easy way out. Yes, it's a very easy way. I have a lot of people who come to me and will say, well, I've had a trauma background. And, and if I've talked to you for a while and I realize you have a, like a personality disorder like borderline, then it will be a case of, well, I've never met a person with borderline personality disorder that didn't have a trauma background. And they go, what do you mean? And I said, there's a lot of people with trauma who don't have BPD. But I've never met someone with BPD who doesn't have a trauma. And they're like, why do you think that is? And I said, remember how I said oceans of emotion? How you feel things different than other people? So it's kind of like if, if the average individual gets punched in the arm and it hurts X amount. You are so sensitive that that same punch is devastating. It really, truly hurts you, and you truly feel it's hurting, and you feel it deeper than anybody else, and you feel that nobody can appreciate your pain, and nobody understands you. Now, the worst thing you can have for a trauma is to not be understood. It's one thing for you to come home and tell your mom somebody attacked you and assaulted you on the way home. And then your mom or your dad or grandma or whoever's your caretaker, you know, well, sweetheart, I love you. We're going to help you. We're going to do the best we can for you. We're going to call police. We're going to do all these things. For that individual, recovery from the trauma is probably pretty good prognosis. But for the individual who has someone who looks at them and says, that can't be. That didn't happen. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what real pain is. Oh, I've had worse happen to me. That traumatic rip can stay with you for a lifetime because then you feel misunderstood, deeply unloved, deeply uncared for. And you even begin to question your own sanity because think about it. How would you feel if I went around all day telling you, that's not your car? Yeah, it is. I got the keys for it. That's not your car. You'd start to wonder about yourself and go, is it my car? Am I, am I getting Alzheimer's? What's happening to me here, you know? So for those individuals, it's a tough old life. And it starts at a very young age. Well, it's, uh, it's interesting about the trauma aspect of it. I know before we started recording, I told you I used to be in the travel business. And mm -hmm. uh, one of the specialties we did was single parent travel. And I met a woman who had a, just the most marvelous relationship with her daughter. Mm -hmm. And just one night over drinks, we're sitting there talking and saying, hey, well, how did that come about? As a single dad, I wanted to know, you know, I, I would like to have that kind of relationship with my kids. And she said it was a lot of therapy, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of work to do. And then she told me the backstory uh, from New York City. She was pulled into an alley. She was gang raped, became pregnant and you know, not getting into faith or anything like that. The decision was made, you know, to continue with the pregnancy. Mm -hmm. This child is a result of this horrific incident. And every day for the rest of her life, she's going to be reminded of that. Yes. And I, I, I immediately built a pedestal so and put a chair up there so she could sit, <laughs> sit on it. Yes. But, you know, I just sit there and she did say that, you know, the therapy was just abs absolutely critical for it. And it seems like you are a proponent of medication as well. I mean, I think there's probably a balance between the yes. two. Everything in life should be a balance. And, and this is what I tell people all the time. If you don't need the medication, why the hell are you taking it? If you do need it, why the hell aren't you taking it? Because there's a, there's a level in there that you, you need. In other words, if your depression is so rough that you can't function, 
for whatever reason, whatever happened, whatever's going on, you can't get out of bed. You, you can't wash. You can't take care of yourself. Because, see, here's the thing about the depression. It can sap your will. And for people who have long-term depression, the only way I know to say it, it, it can be is if today I gave you a 50-pound pack of bricks to put on your back and carry. And no matter what you did every week, I threw an extra brick in your bag. At some point, you would break down in tears going, I can't handle this bag no more. And you may not ever think about how to get that off your back. You just keep thinking, how do I carry it? How do I function? And for those people that have what's called dysthymia, or this, it's called you know this persistent depressive disorder. Some people even call it, you know, like you've heard of functioning alcoholics. These are functioning depressives. They've had depression for so long that they know just enough to get up and go to work and drag themselves into the job and drag themselves home, but there is no joy in their life. Leather, uh, rinse, and repeat. Yes, it's just a yeah. And and I tell people that you know for for the older generation who knows what rose colored glasses are, could you imagine what poop colored glasses are like? Because your whole life you look through these glasses and that's all you see is the S word. No matter what you do, the 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 joy, the luster is gone. Well, to get functioning, you may need the medication boost to get you to do the things that will help you feel better. In other words. The average individual comes in and has a little depression or some depression. First thing I ask is, is are you getting outside? What's going on? And they'll tell me, you know, I can't get out of bed. I don't want to take a bath. I don't want to go out and exercise. And Lord help me, I do not want to talk to people. And they're like, what should I do? And I'm like, well, you need to get up. You need to take a shower. You need to go for a walk and talk to people. And they look at me and go, all right, smart aleck. And I'm like, no, I'm serious as a heart attack. The things that you do when you're happy you need to do. If you're waiting to be happy in order to do them, you have missed the boat. You have to do the things that you do when you're happy in order for the happiness to start to come back. And sometimes you need that medication to give you just enough oomph so that you roll out of the bed and you start doing things. And, and then, outside. then as you start to pick up speed, depending on your, your, your ability and how you work and what's going on, you can reduce the meds. Some people need meds for life, especially ones who have bipolar, schizophrenia, things like that. The bipolar never goes away. It's always waiting. It's like the relative who keeps wanting to move into your basement. They never go away. <laughs> as soon as you think you've gotten rid of them, you come home one day and they're on the doorstep going, hey, cuz, and oh, God, like you're he, back again. It's like poltergeist there. Back. <laughs> yes, it is. And so, you know, those meds are, are, are a lifetime thing. But the thing is, is what you can control in your life is how bad you react to these things. It's like if you know that cousin's coming back to move in your basement, then you can move the furniture out of the basement and make it uncomfortable. You can you can do things. You can turn the heat off down there. You can do things. And in the same way in your life, you can go, look, I already know it's going to be rough when this time cycle comes back of sadness. So what do I need to do? Well, you know what? I need to make sure that I'm eating right. I need to make sure that I'm not doing things. I need, you know what? Drinking is going to be an issue because drinking is one of those things that might bring me down. So I definitely want to watch that, you know, and if I'm having my glass of wine with dinner every night, that's great. But you know what? When, when December comes and I have those blues, there's no two glasses of wine. There's no three. No, stop. Behave. So the medication, too, a lot of people hate the medication because 
they see it as a tether. But now those same people, I look at them and, and I give them my, my loving chastisement because I'm like, got blood pressure, don't you? And they're like, oh yeah, I got blood pressure problem. And I'm like, you know, if you lose a few pounds, blood pressure come down. Yeah, I know, but that's really tough. Okay. You know, if you, you quit smoking them cigarettes, your blood pressure come down. Yeah, I know, but that's tough. And they would actually choose to take the blood pressure medication and keep smoking, drinking, overeating, indulging, misbehaving. And I'm like, why do you have such a problem with taking your depression medication, but you have no problem taking your blood pressure medication? See, and here's where the stigma of society comes. Well, blood pressure is different. I have to take that because the doctor told me to. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, all right, all right, all right. Come, come back, come on, come with me. Reality check. The doctor's telling you to do that because you won't do the other things. You can reduce the amount of blood pressure med. You might not ever get off of it, but you can reduce it. And you can do the same thing with your psych meds. So, so it's a balance because I've seen people that the only way to get you moving is to get you those psych meds. If your anxiety is so debilitating that you cannot get up and go to the mall, that you cannot get up and, you know, the, the social anxiety level is so high or the PTSD for those that have it. You can't get around those noises. You can't go to a restaurant because of the clatter of dishes, you know, for them. You, you can speed up the process a little bit of recovery by saying, here's a little med and a little therapy in between the two of them. Maybe we can get you to sit out here in the outdoor seating area. Maybe we can get you to go to one store in the mall. And we work with you until you get to that level you want. To get to the next store, to the next store, to the... Now, you are you a medical doctor? No, 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 no. So no, you no. cannot prescribe a drug no. to me. But you do, I'm assuming, do work with a medical doctor. So, so depending on, on which, where I am in, in, on any given day, like during the day, I, I work with Luminous Health in the psychiatric day hospital. At the How day. long is it taking you to get used to saying Luminous as opposed to AAMC? You know, they, they, they keep throwing the email at you and you get used to it. Uh, <laughs> so we work there. I work with a, a CRNP, which is a nurse practitioner who does medication. And then overseeing her is a psychiatrist. So, you know, you've learned there's whole levels of people who do the medication stuff. And they're all very good at what they do and, and what they deal. And you work as a team and you talk to people. And the psychiatrists and nurse practitioners they have their niche and they do this, this, you know, what they can do with medication. Because sometimes the medication they give you ain't for what you think it is, but it works. In other words, if you can't sleep at night, you really can't do nothing else. So because you're exhausted all day, you're tired, you can't focus, you can't concentrate, you're nervous, you're depressed, you're anxious, you're mean, you're grouchy, you're irritable, you're hard to get hold of. All these problems are occurring because you can't sleep at night. Now, I could you know, do the therapy with you and try to get you to sleep better. In the end, though, you may need a pop to change your circadian rhythms. So they give you something to help you sleep. Then you notice, oh, I had a good night's sleep. I had a good bowel movement this morning. I ate some breakfast. You know what? Life is looking better. And suddenly your depression and anxiety come down just because they changed your sleep patterns. So you have to look at it from a holistic perspective and go, what all is going on with you? What is happening with you and why? I think, unfortunately, in our society, and you mentioned the, the stigma associated with, uh, you know, taking an antidepressant or, you know. But I think that uh, therapy in general and, and the many different forms it is, I mean, it could just be that best friend that listens to you ramble on. Mm -hmm. uh, it could be the bar back in a bar in Louisiana. Yes. <laughs> Louisiana. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, but 
it's very, very underrated. And the skin, they say, is the biggest organ. But, I mean, the mind, I've got to think, is probably the most important one. I mean, my mother, you know, she's passed on, but she had Alzheimer's for years. And, you know, to see the mind deteriorate like that is just unconscionable to see how to, how to do that. And I think that everybody could use some benefit of some therapy to some degree. I've never met a family that doesn't have somebody who needs some therapy. There's always Uncle Bob, Cousin Ralph. There's always something going on. It's always on. Uncle Bob. Yeah, Uncle Bob. <laughs> I pick on Uncle Bob a lot. Um, it's a therapy thing. You know, we, 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 we pick our terms of endearment that I use to represent people because I never actually give real names. And one of these days, somebody's going to come in and go, um, can you I'm help Bob. my Uncle Bob? And I'm like, oh, crud, Bob, I have been blaming you for everything for 100 years. I'm so sorry. Uncle Elmer? Yeah. You know, so... When when you when you look at those things and you, you you realize that there are things in life that will help you have a better life and, and that social connection's big and exercise and diet, huge. Sleep, huge. And in today's world we have a good way of messing our sleep patterns up to begin with. You can force your sleep out of sync by cutting on the lights, cutting on the computers, cutting on the screens, staying up late at night, and it's a slow, methodical move towards changing your hours of sleep. Your natural circadian rhythms are when the sun goes down, you should be getting ready for sleep. When the sun comes up, your butt should be getting up. And people have never understood me. I got it from my grandma. I mean, when the sun goes down, I get tired. When the sun comes up, once it comes to that window, I can do it I feet hit the floor. <laughs> I'm rolling. And and people are like, how do you do that? And I said, I'm very blessed and fortunate. I've always been that way. And it makes it easier for me to handle life that way. When I force myself, because I've had jobs in the past where I had to do night shift. My health deteriorated. I gained weight. I felt bad. I had headaches. So I know when you mess with that natural rhythm, you mess with yourself. And then when you feel all those symptoms, well, of course, you feel down, depressed, aggravated, anxious, frustrated, irritable, grouchy. Sure. You see how that, that, that snowball goes downhill? Because if you have a relationship and suddenly you're mean, irritable, and grouchy, you know what? The couch is a cold place to stay. And it just keeps, and you know, everything's miserable and everything keeps getting worse. And so you have to stop that and go, I'm getting off the treadmill, I'm changing things. No, it makes it makes perfect sense. I, I, I tend not to require, maybe I don't, uh, a lot of sleep. I mean, I'm usually in bed by 11 and 5 o'clock I'm up. So I'm, I'm doing 6. I mean, not, not the 8 that they recommend, mm -hmm. but once a month. And, and I, I sleep very well. I, it's like I can sleep through anything. You know, somebody's like, well, I got up, I let the dog out, I made dinner, and uh, it went to the bathroom four times and hit you once because you were start you were snoring i'd be like oh really i didn't <laughs> know anything like that but once a month yeah i need to be like okay i'm gonna sleep till 10 a.m and it's just sort of like a reset for me you catch that reset you know I, and i think i'm fortunate like you are yeah and that you're able to do that but now is therapy a i don't want to say a one-time thing but i mean is this typically a lifetime thing i mean or is it a something that can be self-managed to the point of okay i need and and i'm, I'm just thinking okay i know family therapists will go through like a divorce or something like that that the needs of therapy for a 
six, seven, eight-year-old as their parents are going through divorce are much different than a 13, 14, 15, which are much different than a 23, 24, 25-year-old person through the different stages. But is therapy a lifelong thing for m- most? or So it's one of those things where, it, it again, I hate to use the word depends because I tease my clients when they say, oh, it depends. I said, those are adult diapers. I need a better answer. That's right. That's what my kids are saving up for. That's what my kids' 401k is for. <laughs> yeah. So the, the thing is, is if, let's say, let's take an, I like to work from the average and let's say the average individual who's not had many problems in their life, they have something that's causing them a little depression or anxiety, or they have a, a tragic event happening in their life, then they usually can come in and have, you know, six to eight sessions. They get some things like the basic therapy that all therapists learn is called CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is basically how to rewire some of your thinking and to change some of your behaviors and as you do CBT and you pick it up and you start doing those things, you realize, oh, hey, you know, this will help me. I can change this. I can handle this. I can think of it this way. And then those people, are they get their reset. They feel much better. Their symptoms improve very quickly, and away they go. And you know what? You're like, okay, now make sure you tell your friends about me, and, you know, they go about their life. And you may see them, or they may say, can you talk to my Uncle Bob? Okay, and they'll bring him in or they themselves maybe down the road will have another tragic event and need just to see you for one or two sessions or a booster. See, the idea is is this isn't about proselytizing. I don't want you in those cases to be a customer for life. I want you to get better and I want you to go spread the good word that you got better, that you you changed, that you did these things and your life has picked up. I want you to be a carrier of the idea that you know, if I get my sleep together and my food and I start, you know, seeing people that I felt better and you, it's a ripple effect. Absolutely. That's for the average individual who just has basic depression, basic anxiety, problems like that. More serious conditions. Some people have uh, like OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. And Things may have led up to that. Every now and then, an event can lead up to it, a tragic event. But as a person develops this type of disorder, they may need a little bit more help. And they may take a little longer to change. And then they work through it. But they still work through it, and things change. People with personality disorders, if it took you 45 years to get to where you're at now, six weeks is not going to change you. True. It just ain't... I mean... Most people have a hard time just changing a normal habit like smoking in six weeks. Can you imagine changing your whole perspective on life? Yeah. You know, and and one of the signifiers of personality disorders is most people with personality disorder have what I call one way of thinking. In other words, solve all my problems by doing this. So you remember when I said earlier, the more choices in life you have, the better you play the game. So if you go into a room and you have five different choices of how to handle the people in that room as far as a job interview or something, you have options. You can think. You can go, oh, these are in suits. I better be this. Oh, they're dressed casually today. You know, I need to loosen my tie and become part of them. You can adapt and change to the situation because you have lots of options. Could you imagine if you had only one way of doing things? And that one way of doing things is what you had to do every time. You're like that toy robot when you was a kid that, that would hit the wall and it would back up and it's supposed to change its wheel right. and then go another direction but and keep doesn't. doing it. 
this robot's broke and it just keeps hitting that wall over and over again the same way, hoping that sooner or later it will get through that wall. That kind of rewiring is intensive. And even to get to a point where you can start to make those changes, most of those clients who have like borderline personality disorder, before we even deal with therapy, I have to keep you alive. And odds are you're suicidal. Odds are you've attempted. Odds are you might be self-harming. And when I say self-harming, most people think cutting. It's a whole other area. But I tell people when they come in and I say, okay, do you engage in any self-harming behavior to include cutting, burning, banging, scratching, poking, hitting things, hitting objects, hitting yourself, picking fights with people that you know will hurt you, harmful behaviors like choosing to go out and excessively drink or do a substance or putting yourself in dangerous situations. And they're like, whoa, you're way more. And I'm like, don't you see how this self-harming? If I go to a place and deliberately poke a fight with somebody that's going to hurt me, that's self-harming. I'm literally choosing, instead of me going, I'm going to cut myself, I'm going to make you hit me. I'm not picking up the razor blade, but I'm provoking, provoking the attack in another way. Yes. So, so I got to get you past all that because for some people, that's a coping mechanism. Coping mechanisms are anything that gets you through. And the thing is, is when people look at that, they go, well, no, that's not a coping mechanism. Yes, it is. Drinking is a coping mechanism. Smoking is a coping mechanism. Overeating is a coping mechanism. And they're like, what do you mean? I said, they may not be good coping mechanisms. But it's what got you through that part of your life that was so tough that you couldn't figure out any other way to get by than to do that thing. Now we need to learn how to do other things to deal with that problem instead of that thing. Because that thing is dangerous. So now we need to figure out other ways to help you cope. So the first part of treating this is getting you to a level just where you're safe, where you're not in the hospital every six weeks, where you're not, you know, seeing the doctor getting stitched up, or you're not, you know, under a constant worry of, you know, will I see you alive next week? You know, we have to get past all that. So you can imagine how that happens before I even start doing therapy. It's kind of like you come to me and say, let's build a house. And I'm like, excuse me, did did, did y'all check the ground? Have you made sure it's firm? Have you laid a foundation? I can't put the wood up until I got concrete on the ground. What are you doing? So a lot of people come in and go, I want therapy instantly. And I'm like, great, but we need to first get you to a level where you're safe. And we also have to make sure you're going to be here every week. If you're going to show up three or four times and then get angry and not show up, I can't do nothing. With Don't that. show up. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, and it, so it's getting you to that point where you will do, participate, make changes, listen. And so for people who have a, a more severe, and if you look at a personality disorder itself, it's kind of like depression. There's mild, moderate, severe. Well, when you look at people with personality disorders, there's a certain number of criteria and a certain level you are. So, like with BPD, nine criteria. You don't have to have all nine. If you have five of these nine criteria, then you can be diagnosed with this. Okay. Now, let's say that you got six or seven and your case is severe. If I can get you down to five, we're cooking. If I get you down to four, you're technically, in my case, I think, not there anymore. But it's kind of like saying you're not depressed anymore, but you have a propensity to edge into the depression. 
So we have to keep working on this. So we, we get you from that point where you're not going to kill yourself and you're not going to hurt yourself. And then we start working on the actual therapy stuff. And, and this is, I always tell people, I said, this is the equivalent of if you brought your car into me and said, I have a problem. And I look and say, oh, it's your distributor cap. It's broken. We'll, we'll fix it. That's your anxiety. If you bring your car into me and say, it ain't running, and I open the hood and there's no engine, I got a lot of work ahead of me. Yeah. get a lot of work. So in those cases, some people will have therapy for six months, a year. And for some people in some types of therapy, you're talking three, five years. Because, again, changing not just what you're doing, but how you're thinking. And for some individuals like that, even trusting me enough that they're actually going to listen to me, it may take six months before they trust me. Because nobody in their life do they stick with. That makes sense. That makes sense. Because they drop you. You know, you know, we live in a really good time, I think, because we are losing the stigmatism of, oh, what are you going to shrink for? as a sign of weakness. You know, you're, you know, what, you know, what, what the hell's wrong with you? Uh, just deal with it. And, yeah. and we're realizing that we need to take care of, you know, what sits up here on top of our shoulders. And everybody at some point, um, you know, I, I've been to a therapist or, or two in my life for various reasons, you know, knock on wood for myself that it's not a chronic type of a thing. Uh, I would imagine that you probably have been to a therapist or two as well. Uh, we, we have a joke. Um, staff meetings, you know, most places when you go to a staff meeting, you're going to a staff meeting. Only amongst therapists and social workers do we call the staff meeting our support group. Because <laughs> 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 that's what it ends up being half the time. Uh, we consult. Um, at any given time, I'm part of one of the other consulting group because I need somebody else to help me figure out my cases and, and go and review that. Then having individual forms of therapy and talking to people. And yeah, it's, it's a never ending thing about keeping stuff straight. Well, I'll tell you, as we, as we wrap it up, there's one burning question that's been going on from the beginning of this for me. And that you'd mentioned that you were in, uh, grew up in Louisiana. Yes, sir. When did you move out of Louisiana? Oh, how many times did I move out? Because I told you, my mama was a rolling stone. Right, well, when, um, when, when did you... I mean, cause the big, the big somebody, permanent move? Somebody told me one time, I was speaking with a woman who owns an art store on Main Street, and she had this wonderful Scandinavian accent. And she said she had been in America for 40 years or something like that. And I said, okay, well, why do we still have this... Scandinavian accent. And she said that if somebody is in an area that has an accent mm -hmm. and leaves after their teen years, they likely will keep that throughout the rest of their lives. And I didn't know whether that was a bunch of BS or not. And here I am talking with you and I, I immediately pick up the Southern accent. Yes, sir. And I was just curious as to when you... So, so I moved... I left Louisiana when I was uh, 17, joined the Army, and then I picked up a lot of expressions because you'll hear me say things like cool dude and cool beans and, you know, awesome and things that, you know, awesome sauce and people laugh. And I'm like, when you've been around enough, you pick up things that sound good and you lock them in your brain, and you keep repeating them. 
Now, the accent comes and goes and gets thicker and, and less thick depending on the situation. So if you catch me on a Monday morning after I've had a good Sunday's rest, I have less accent. And as the week goes on and I get tired, my accent comes back. Natural <laughs> muscle memory comes back. If I pick up the phone and talk to anybody from back home, I get everybody picks on me and they go, you sound like you're eating honey because my I will just slow down and talk in the most southern thing you ever heard because you immediately snap back, you know. And so what happens is, is that muscle memory is there and no matter how much you work to get rid of it. It sneaks back up on you when you let your guard down or when you when you let your natural, you know, or you, you know, and, and if I go to an area of the world, I've been to places funny. I, I visited when I was in Germany. I started to get a German accent and I kept the German accent until the day I came back to the States and then it started to fade away because I pick up accents very quickly and I love languages. I speak German, Russian. I lost most of my French, sad to say. My French teachers would kill me for that one, though. Over time, though, you know, you, you, you adapt how you talk and you pick it up. And the thing is, though, that Southern thing is just kind of bred into me really deep. And it, it will come out. And if, like I said, today is the end of a long week. Because, man, by the time Saturday hits, I'm burning. I'm running on fumes. <laughs> Just trying to get through this day, so you're that, catching me at the tired point. That that's fantastic. Well, the hypothesis remains intact. Yes. With that, Tex Ellis, changing patterns is a great name for this because I mean, you as as we've talked over the last bit, you know, it's it's all about changing these patterns that have either come about either genetically yes, or sure. through trauma mm -hmm. and changing patterns. And that's uh, changingpatternspsychotherapy.com yes, sir. is the world's longest URL, but that's <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, I didn't pick that one, but so don't fuss at me, but my good advisor did it for me. So um, if you want to, if um, you can go online, if you look at me, uh, I have YouTube and I'm not, I have people do my social media, but there's stuff on, I guess it's Spotify or whatever they look at. And there's videos and, and, and not just me, but there's a lot of people that put a lot of good information out there to get you curious and ask questions. And then as soon as you get your questions together, pick you a professional call, see somebody, do some therapy. And I always tell people, you know, therapists, if you if you go do therapy and you don't like your therapy, then don't just quit therapy. And I tell people, it's like your car. If your car has a problem and you take it to a mechanic and the mechanic ain't working right, fire your mechanic. Tell them what you want. I told you, no, 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 this is what I want. And if they can't help you, then go get another mechanic. Do not walk the rest of your life. And it's the same way with therapy. I've had people tell me, I saw a therapist once 10 years ago and I didn't like it. And I'm like, okay, try a different therapist, <laughs> you know. Don't don't slow up, though. Keep looking and digging till you get what you want, because all of us are different. Every therapist, there's warm and fuzzy therapists, and I like those because they, they're the kind that work with people who need someone who's a little bit calm. Me, I'm, I'm a little bit more in your face, and I have people tell me that's what I need. So there's a whole mix of therapists for a whole mix of people. Keep looking till you find the one that works for you.
Changing Patterns Psychotherapy. And Tex Alice here again in the Gardner Center on Shaking Pin Round Road. Thank you very much for your time again this morning. I appreciate Thank you, sir. it. And it's, it's, this has been really a very fascinating conversation. And I, um, I, I encourage people, if you feel you're in a crisis, don't hesitate. Pick up the phone and call 911 if you, if you think you're not safe. Um, there is suicide text lines now for people who are having thoughts, but with the generation that likes to text, again, go if you go on the internet and look, the text lines are there, call lines are there, national suicide hotlines are there. Reach out to somebody. I always tell my clients, you know what? The best therapy in the world does not work on dead people. You have to stay alive. It's the only way I can help you. You have to keep pushing through no matter how bad it gets keep pushing through there is light at the end of the tunnel i promise you thanks for listening to this week's local business spotlight please make sure to visit ionanapolis.net for all your local news events and opinion and in case you haven't already please subscribe to the ion annapolis daily news brief where we bring you all the day's local news direct to your phone tablet or computer in about 10 minutes it comes to you at 6 a.m every monday through friday and you can subscribe on apple Podcasts, google podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts